You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferrett. The Republican-controlled Wisconsin Senate voted yesterday to deny the reappointment of Wisconsin Elections Commission Administrator Megan Wolf. And shortly after the vote, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call announced a suit challenging the vote, claiming that it happened illegally. The state Senate uh, purported to take a vote on uh, on a non-appointment of Megan Wolf. Um, So we are here today to announce uh, that we have filed suit uh, in Dane County Circuit Court. Um, We have asked the court to issue a declaratory judgment uh, and an injunction making clear that Megan Wolf remains the administrator of the Wisconsin Election Commission. We're going to unpack what led to yesterday's vote and later learn some more about the legal questions being asked. And we want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Have you been following this story? What do you think of this vote to try to remove Wolf as elections administrator? How important is it to you that we have an election administrator in place going into the 2024 elections? What's your response to all this? Call 800-642-1234, and that's 800-642-1234, or email ideas at wpr.org. Anya Van Wagtendonk covers the state capitol for WPR. She covered yesterday's vote. Anya, welcome back to Central Time. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you remind us why this vote was happening in the Senate in the first place? Yeah, so there are a lot of complicated procedural details here. Um, Megan Wolf served out a four-year term administering Wisconsin's elections. That's including the 2020 election. And so she became sort of the face of many of the baseless accusations of fraud from supporters of former President Donald Trump. I should note that she doesn't craft election policy at all, but she was blamed for some decisions by the Elections Commission and then even for policy that predated her. So her term expired this summer, and normally the Elections Commission might renominate her to the role, but they didn't. Um, again, this is complicated. That was actually a sign of support because recent state law suggests that if she doesn't step down, she can just stay in the role as what's called a holdover. But Senate Republicans disagreed with that. They said she needed to go through a standard confirmation process. And so they held one, they had committee hearings and a public hearing over the last few weeks. And then yesterday's vote, which broke down along pure party lines, Republicans all voted against confirming her, Democrats voted in support. And what was the scene like at the Capitol yesterday? Yeah, there has been so much going on at the Capitol this week, even beyond this vote. Um, So things were very lively. Um, For the vote itself, press was all kind of crowded around. Democrats, who, as I mentioned, have been protesting this whole process, gave speeches on the floor calling the vote unlawful. They even tried to stop it using a procedural move again. Um, Of course, they failed to do so. And then, you know, notably to me, as someone who does attend a lot of these types of events, you don't always see many people in the galleries of the Senate. It's kind of mundane government business most of the time. Um, But a number of people who oppose Megan Wolf came to witness the vote. Some of these are actually kind of prominent uh, Wisconsin election deniers who also spoke out against her at the public hearing a couple of weeks ago. Um, And they broke into applause when the vote count was read out, which was really notable. That doesn't normally happen. And it's very much against the rules. And you mentioned those floor speeches. I want to give a listen right now to some of what Senate Majority Leader, a Republican Demon Levyhue, had to say yesterday. A key component of fair and honest elections 
is that the electorate have confidence in our elections. And if they don't have confidence in our elections, we're disenfranchising voters. They're not going to go out and vote if they don't feel that their vote is not going to be stolen or that there's fraud going on. The vote today represents a lack of faith the people of Wisconsin have in Megan Wolf to serve as administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahue there. And Anya, there has been a state audit saying that some election guidance could have been clarified better. However, recounts, investigations have shown no widespread fraud and a very tidy election by all counts. However, is that narrative about confidence still sort of common among Republican leaders right now? Yeah, and I'll just point out that the guidance that's come out, you know, criticizing some of the actions that the Elections Commission has taken, again, had Wolf has no say in that. She doesn't give a vote for or against. And so some of that guidance, her job is simply to sort of communicate what the Elections Commission has already decided. But it is true that she became sort of the face of the criticisms of the 2020 election, some of which, you know, come from more official channels, some of which have been more of the kind of conspiratorial language we've heard about votes being um, stolen, the election being stolen from Donald Trump. So she's gotten sort of mixed up in all of that. And so that's part of what Republicans have said is that, you know, Wisconsinites deserve a clean slate. And that includes, you know, not bringing back the person who administered this very controversial election. For her part, Wolf says that giving into that argument would be a politicization of her nonpartisan office. And Megan Wolf will be on the morning show tomorrow with Kate Archer Kent to talk more about what's going on. Has Governor Evers um, weighed in on this at all? That's a good question. He has. He has weighed in in support of Megan Wolf and calling um, yesterday's vote uh, a sham, essentially. Um, and that's been kind of the argument of a number of Democrats and then also, Attorney General Josh Call, you mentioned the lawsuit that he filed, essentially calling this entire process unlawful and illegal. And Evers, in a statement, also said that um, this is kind of the politicization, also the undermining of the faith in Wisconsin elections is going through this type of process is actually what undermines faith, not you know the actions taken by the commissioner or by Administrator Wolf. And I'll correct myself. Uh, That is Monday on the morning show, not tomorrow. It's almost the weekend. Um, (laughs) Josh Call announced the lawsuit uh, immediately after this vote, uh, challenging the decision, as we said before. Uh, What do we know about his argument for Wolf staying on as administrator? Yeah, so this gets back into that kind of nitty gritty process stuff. Um, Listeners may remember a state Supreme Court decision from last summer that allowed Fred Preen to stay on at the DNR after his term expired. And what that ruling basically found is that if an appointed official doesn't step down, there's no vacancy to fill. So in other words, the official can stay in place kind of indefinitely. Call says that precedent applies to Wolf. Democrats at the time did not support the Preen decision uh, that was decided by a conservative court, and it was in support of a Scott Walker appointee. Democrats didn't support that, but Call says now the law is the law, and it applies to Wolf. And Anya, we have a, a presidential primary vote coming up in February of 2024, not too far off. Can you talk about the political timing of this event and what it could mean for the months ahead? 
Yeah. So the first elections of next year are nonpartisan uh, votes in February and then the presidential primary in April. Um, that's true for us as voters. That's the timeline. But for clerks who administer the election, the 1800 local clerks in Wisconsin, they start their jobs much, much sooner than Election Day. They order equipment and print ballots, things like that. Um, and so we've heard from clerks that say they need to know who they answer to before then. Um, and of course, 2024 is shaping up to be another very dramatic presidential election cycle, as they all seem to be these days. And so we really kind of need to know who's in charge going into that. And as we wrap up, Anya, what are you watching for as a next step in this uh, ongoing story? Yeah, so we'll see how the DOJ lawsuit unfolds. Um, Wolf says she's continuing in the job, sort of unless and until a court tells her not to. Um, at uh, the press conference yesterday, uh, Attorney General Call said that the lawsuit may resolve relatively quickly. He said election lawsuits tend to move faster for obvious reasons. But as we just said, 2024 is right around the corner. So clock is ticking. Anya, thanks for bringing us up to speed. Thanks for having me. Anya Van Wagtendonk is WPR's state capitol reporter. We talked with her about yesterday's vote in the state Senate to remove Megan Wolf as elections administrator, a move that was challenged by Attorney General Josh Call. We're going to keep talking about the legal side of that in just a minute, and we want to hear from you at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have about the legal side of this story? What kind of effects do you think continued challenges around this position could have on next year's elections? If you work as a clerk or part of the electoral process, we'd love to hear what you're thinking and feeling right now. Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. We continue our talk about legal challenges around the status of Megan Wolf as Wisconsin Elections Commission Administrator. We're joined now by Eric Casper, professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and director of the school's Menard Center for Constitutional Studies. Eric, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me. Now, we heard a little bit about it before the break, but uh, Attorney General Call is citing a state Supreme Court decision about former Natural Resources Board Chair and member Fred Prane as precedent for his challenge to this vote on Megan Wolf. Can you remind us again what happened with Fred Prane and why does it matter now? Sure. In the Prane case, uh, what happened is um, Prane was a member of the board that directs the Department of Natural Resources. Uh, He was nominated to that position in May of 2015. He was confirmed by the Senate in November of that year for a term that was uh, set to expire on May 1st, 2021. Um, In April of 2021, uh, Governor Evers nominated um, uh, Sandra Noss uh, to replace Prane, uh, but the Senate did not take up action on that new nomination. Prane continued to serve on the role on the board, and uh, by August of 2021, that resulted in the filing of a lawsuit by the Attorney General's office claiming that Prane was serving beyond the, the end of that term, and so therefore Uh, he shouldn't be exercising the the powers of a member of that board. Uh, Fast forward to June of 2022, we get a four to three ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court that absent statutory or constitutional language prohibiting a holdover period, incumbents may lawfully hold over after their statutorily prescribed term has concluded and until their successor is appointed and qualified 
meaning until a successor is uh, nominated and, uh, and confirmed by, in this case, the, the state Senate. And so that is uh, one of the, obviously, key precedents in this case uh, because of the ruling stating that even though a term of office may have ended uh, for one of these appointee positions, until a successor has gone fully through a process of uh, being a, a nominated and confirmed, um, the, the person in that office already can continue to serve. So is there some uncertainty, some dispute right now about <laughs> what a vacancy in public office actually means? Uh, there is. Um, and this, in some respects, goes back to the question of, first of all, what it means to be appointed, and then uh, what, as you point out, what does it mean uh, for there to be a vacancy? Because the statutes um, state that the administrator of the Elections Commission shall be appointed by a majority of the members of the commission with the advice and consent of the Senate. And so what the lawsuit here is uh, arguing is that for uh, a majority of the members of the commission to appoint someone, that means a majority of all of the members. And there's six members on the commission, meaning that you need uh, four members uh, to be voting in favor of a nominee for it to be passed on to the state Senate. The Senate uh, majority, however, um, passed a resolution uh, earlier this year uh, stating that because the vote was three in favor and three abstaining uh, for Administrator Wolf, um, that the state Senate majority considers her to have been nominated by the Elections Commission, and that's why they took up uh, that question of confirmation here yesterday. We're talking with Eric. And then Kemp. we get to the. Oh, sorry, Eric. Oh, sorry, go go ahead. ahead. No, no. Oh, no. I was going to say, well, then that gets us to the question of um, if there has been an appointment uh, or not, and therefore whether or not there's been a vacancy. Because according to the Prane case, um, if you don't have some sort of definitive action um, that ends one's term of office uh, or you don't have a new appointee, then the holdover can continue to serve. And so the lawsuit is arguing that um, there was not a formal nomination put forward here. And so therefore, uh, the Senate rejection vote did not create a vacancy according to the terms of the Prane case. The Senate majority, uh, however, views this as um, if there was a formal nomination, then they could take action. And because they rejected that nomination, it means that the Senate action created a vacancy. And that matters in part because um, if there is a vacancy in terms of that administrator and it's not filled within 45 days of the vacancy occurring, then something called the Joint Committee on Legislative Organization is empowered by the statutes to appoint a temporary administrator. We are talking with Eric Casper right now, a political science professor at UW-Eau Claire, about the latest in the story over the Wisconsin Elections Commission administrator. We're also taking your calls at 800-642-1234. We'll go to the calls now. Uh, John is with us in Appleton. Hi, John. Greetings, and thank you for your service, both of you. Um, so I, was not, I, am, I am a liberal Democrat. I was not a fan of the Prane debacle. I think that was a debacle. I think it was really uh, bad. Now, um, in, in Megan Wolf's case, it's, it's a little bit different for me because she's involved with elections, and elections are pretty, pretty, pretty 
important in our whole democratic system. So not that the environment isn't. I'm a staunch environmentalist, too. However, however, I think that when it comes to elections, there should be some special protection because what's happening is totally political. The Republicans don't like her because she upholds the, the reality that, that, you know, gets Trump, you know, booted out and, and you know, on the, as, uh, considered a loser. John, thanks for the call. I got you. You gave us a lot to work with there. Um, uh, Eric, John talking about how a position like Megan Wolf's should ideally be above politics. What do you think? Well, I mean, one of the questions here, um, both at the circuit court level where the case has been filed and um, if the case does eventually get appealed up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, is does, does the Prane case hold as precedent or could this case be distinguished from it? Or given that we have a different makeup on the state Supreme Court, if they hear this case, uh, could they reverse the Prane decision? Um, because remember, the, the Prane decision was a four to three uh, outcome and uh, Chief Justice uh, uh, Rogensack um, was uh, in that majority. Uh, she retired and uh, now uh, Justice uh, Protasewicz is on the court in her place. And so there's a question of whether or not the state Supreme Court will even uh, stick to that uh, Prane decision. But even if they do, uh, we're dealing with a different statute with some different requirements in terms of the appointment process. We're dealing with a different type of agency, as uh, the caller pointed out, the difference between the, the DNR and the Elections Commission, and kind of what uh, the different roles of each of those agencies uh, could be. And you're dealing with a different nominator. Uh, in this case, it's the Elections Commission that does the nomination, not the governor's office. And this situation is a little bit different in terms of there's been definitive Senate action where in the Prane case, um, there, it was because the Senate didn't take up the nomination uh, that the lawsuit was filed. Here we had Senate uh, action in terms of a definitive vote yesterday. So for uh, these or a variety of these reasons, we could uh, wind up with uh, the Prane case being distinguished. And there's also, as a caller pointed out, um, a, a concern here with the upcoming election and um, the fact that uh, there are timely issues that need to be resolved because election day doesn't get pushed back farther into the future. Um, it's those election dates are already set for next year. Um, and so you need to make sure that we have the, um, the answers that local clerks need uh, from the administrator of the Elections Commission uh, as those issues arise. John, thanks for the call. Let's go next to Craig in Gays Mills. Hi, Craig. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my uh, response to this is that I feel like I feel personally uh, insulted by this action by the Senate. I'm a chief election inspector um, here in Crawford County and have been for many years. And it's been said that all politics are local, but actually all elections are local. We're the ones who run the elections along with the clerks. And this um, saying that the public has lost confidence in the system, I think that's a result of constantly repeating groundless accusations uh, when, in fact, we run very good elections. Thank you very much. Um, and to, uh, to defame the commissioner, actually, I think is personally insulting to the Democrats and the Republicans and the unaffiliated inspectors 
who runs the actual elections. Craig, thank you for the call. Um, Eric, Craig saying that this goes well beyond Megan Wolf and kind of comments on the entire election system, including him. Yeah, and I mean, there are quite a number uh, somewhere in the range of 18 or 1900, you know, local election officials and other, you know, paid employees at the local level and lots of volunteers who are there on the front lines running these elections. Um, and they should be applauded for, you know, the work that they put in. And we want to make sure whatever happens with this case, um, I think it's important that you get timely court resolution with some definitive answer, uh, because um, we don't want to be in a situation where there is confusion about who is the administrator of the Elections Commission when we're getting into a season when these elections officials and the people who work for them and then ultimately even the volunteers need that information that they have to rely on as far as what they're going to do uh, on Election Day. And Eric, in our last few moments here, do you think the state Supreme Court is the likely destination for this? Uh, It seems like it might be headed there. Um, You you never know for sure. But um, if we're looking for a definitive answer, um, it may need to come from the state Supreme Court. Um, And um, this is because it involves elections. It usually is the type of case that has the potential to be fast-tracked if it needs to be decided by the state Supreme Court. Um, but again, we'll have to see how it plays out and what any type of ruling we get from a circuit court and if that ends up being appealed or not. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Eric Casper is a professor of political science at UW-Eau Claire and director of the school's Menard Center for Constitutional Studies. We talked to them today about some of the legal aspects and challenges related to Megan Wolf's future as administrator of elections in Wisconsin. A reminder that Monday morning after 7, Megan Wolf joins the morning show with Kate Archer-Kent. And coming up on Monday on Central Time, a lot of apologies sound really bad. We learn how to get better at saying we're sorry and patching things up when we make a mistake. That and more coming up Monday on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in today for Rob Ferret. You're with us on the Ideas Network. A study published earlier this month found that one in five generic prescription drugs were cheaper when purchased through online pharmacy discount programs compared to their out-of-pocket cost with insurance. Those discounts amount to billions of dollars in potential savings for American patients. Our next guest will tell us how online pharmacy programs work, who they could benefit, and how to take advantage of them. And we want to hear from you, too, at 800-642-1234. How high is your out-of-pocket cost for prescription meds? Are you able to afford them? What have you done to be able to pay for your medication? And have you tried shopping around with an online service like GoodRx or Amazon? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Dan Weissman is the creator and host of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about why healthcare costs so much and what we can do about it. Prior to creating the podcast, he was a staff reporter for Marketplace and Chicago's WBEZ. Dan, welcome to Central Time. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, Dan, first off, and this may not have a simple answer, but why are generic drugs in particular so expensive in the United States? Oh, my God. Well, it's not just generic drugs, right? It's Mm -hmm. drugs in general are super expensive in the United States. And um, 
Okay. Here's why they're so expensive in general for us. Um, and it's going to be a little complicated, but the, basically when you, you know, we think of generic drugs as being super, super cheap to produce and they are, and they don't have patents on them. So they could be sold cheaply, but often you come to the pharmacy counter and you're told like, oh, wait, no, this, your insurance doesn't want you to take this one. Uh, it'll cost you a lot of money. Um, so the, what's happening there is, um, there's our insurance and our insurance contracts to a company called a pharmacy benefit manager. This is assuming you have insurance. And there's a difference between how things work with regular insurance and with pharmacy insurance. When you go to the doctor um, and you get a statement from your insurance called an explanation of benefits, right? They'll tell you, like, even if you are still paying down your deductible for the year, the amount you pay before insurance kicks in, it'll say like, hey, your doctor said that this visit would be 150 bucks, but we have a deal with them. So they only charge us 75 bucks. And so it's 75, like we're not paying this time because you're paying your deductible, it's 75 bucks to you. So they pass that savings on to you. With uh, pharma, not so much. So they decide what, they make a deal with the drug maker and they decide you know, what they're gonna pay and they decide what you're gonna pay, um, which is not necessarily connected to what they pay. So um, you know, I was just looking at, uh, so, that, so that, that's the short of it, right? You pay what your insurance which is to say with their pharmacy benefit manager decides you're going to pay. Um, they also play a big role in why not just generic, but branded drugs are so expensive. Um, basically they also cut deals for branded drugs and then they, you know, they, they, they get, a, they get a cut um, and they, you know, they, they, they tell you what the price is that you're going to pay, but they're not telling you what they're paying. They're not necessarily passing all their savings on to you. So that's the, uh, that's the, that's the long and the, that's the short of it more than the long of it because the long one's really long. Yeah. And in that study I mentioned, um, the two services that researchers were looking at were GoodRx and Amazon Pharmacy. And mm -hmm. I guess the big question is when it comes to the, those one in five drugs that they're able to offer cheaper than insurance is, why? How are they able to do that? <laughs> well, it's, the, it, it's because they are, what they're doing is they're making a deal with those same pharmacy benefit managers. They, they're going to the same pharmacy benefit managers and saying like, hey, what's, what's your cheapest price on this drug? Like, what do you sell it to us for? What do you, what do you, what do you help us get it for? And then they are passing those savings on to you directly. So um, that's you, you, with GoodRx and Amazon, they're basically, they're using those pharmacy benefit managers to get a good price. They are, and they're like, you know, with GoodRx, they're taking a little cut from what the, uh, from what the, pharmacist at the counter would get um and then with amazon they are the pharmacist at the counter so they're <laughs> they're getting that um the other the other model that's that a lot of people know about is is mark cuban's site cost plus drugs and his deal is uh what he says he does is um you know i i find the cheapest generic maker of this drug and then i sell it to you at a small markup um and so he, he claims he's being completely transparent about the prices so but it's it's the same deal like you're you're getting the benefit of somebody else's negotiation. Whereas when you get it from your insurance, it's not that way. And I, I, I was, I was curious. I hadn't thought about this until like 10 minutes ago, but I was asking myself, well, wait a minute. Uh, could I get a better deal than this? Cause I have pretty good insurance. And so, you know, for the like medicines I take, I might pay like 10 bucks. That's like the lowest price I might pay. And I was like, but could I get that cheaper? And the answer is yes. Yeah, and Dan, I understand that you have some personal experience of getting your drugs a lot cheaper than you might otherwise have. How did you first come to try out uh, these online pharmacy discount programs? Well, you know, I I didn't 
I, I'm lucky, and the story's a little bit uh, a little bit different than that. Um, you know, I changed insurance a few years ago, and when I got the call from Walgreens saying that my prescription had renewed, like you know, in January, they were like, "And it's going to be seven hundred dollars." And this was like for an old generic drug that I've been taking for a long time and been paying like ten or twenty bucks a month for. And uh, and that was when I I had heard of GoodRx, and I was like, and I knew that it would allow you to kind of comparison shop to see what you would pay at different pharmacies and that it would offer you discounts um, on those prices. And so I went, I looked it up and I was like, oh, Walgreens wants, you know, all these hundreds of dollars. And like what I would pay just just the straight up no insurance price at the pharmacy counter was like several hundred dollars at Walgreens and a lot at CVS, but like 20 bucks at Costco, which was really, really interesting. And then with the GoodRx discount, it would be less, but still, still a spread. That's what got me interested in those, in these, in this company and in kind of trying to understand how drug prices work. I was like, how can this possibly be? Um, my, I, I ended up paying less because, uh, you know, I, I was like, this can't be right. I think Walgreens just doesn't know that I have new insurance. They think I have no insurance. And that's why they're trying to charge me this crazy amount. And I went to the pharmacy. I was like, do you guys need my new insurance card? And they're like, yes. And they were like, great. Your prescription is $5. <laughs> hmm. So that was my, that was my story, but it got me, it got me interested. That's how I came. I mean, I had been doing this show for a few months at that point, and I had thought I knew how I, what I knew about drug prices was was really complicated. And these entities called pharmacy benefit managers, I was like, I, I I'm really going to have to wait until I'm a lot smarter to, to understand that. But once I had that experience, I was like, I need to understand this now. Like this is too weird. Um. So that that was my that was that was my learning uh, process. We're talking with Dan Weissman, creator and host of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about the cost of healthcare. We're looking at online pharmacy discount programs, how they work, and who they might be a good fit for. We're taking your calls and questions, too, at 800-642-1234. Dan, you mentioned Mark Cuban's company, Cost Plus. I want to listen to a clip of him now sort of laying out the the, um, what it involves. Here he is on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. I mean, no one trusts the drug industry at right, all, right. right? And so what we said was, you know, sunlight is the best disinfected. So we, if you go and you put in the drug and if we carry it, um, it'll show you not only what we sell it for, it'll show you our cost. And like we'll, actual cost? Actual cost, what we really pay for it. We mark it up 15%, that's it. We have a $3 pharmacy fee and $5 for shipping. That's it. And so you know exactly what we paid. And so you can trust it. And that's the first time in the pharmacy industry where when you're buying a medication, you can trust that you're paying a fair price. So you're making money? Not yet. (laughs) And Dan, that sounds pretty simple. Is it that simple? What are some of the costs and fees and things people should watch out for if they're considering shopping around on something like Cost Plus? Well, it's you know, pretty simple, like, you know, and he laid it out, like, right, they're going to charge you three bucks for this, they're going to charge you a shipping fee. Um, So the question is, but here's the, here's what it has to become kind of a calculation for you each time out, right? One, you might want to compare, like, will I get a better deal from Mark Cuban? Would I get a better deal through GoodRx? But the other thing is that you want to look at, like, well, what if I, because when you, when you buy your prescription through any of these services, through Amazon, well, Amazon's different, but through GoodRx or through Mark Cuban, um, essentially you're paying cash, meaning it, they're not involving your insurance company. So if you've got a deductible, an amount that you're supposed to pay before your insurance kicks in to cover anything, then you kind of have to look at, well, basically what's your relationship with it, right? A lot of people have deductibles in the thousands of dollars and the, and the amount you might pay for medication like might be, I don't know, I mean, just really, really varies, but unless you've got, I mean, but you know, some people have, have, 
take, take medications that cost thousands and thousands of dollars a year, in which case you're thinking about like, well, okay, I, I'm waiting, I'm paying some, I'm paying, uh, waiting for that deductible to kick in and, and so insurance can carry me through the rest of the year. But for a lot of people, if you're like, well, I take this thing for my high cholesterol, I take this thing for low blood pressure, whatever, um, you know, it, or I need I need this medication for a couple months, but it's not going to get near those thousands of dollars. I'm not worried about that. Then, you know, then it make, might make more sense to see if you can get a better deal. I just looked it up. I was like, oh, this drug that I take that I pay $10 a month for, Mark Cuban seems to be saying he'll sell it to me for six. Like, I got to look at like the shipping and the and their three dollar pharmacy fee maybe it comes up to 10 anyway but i'm like that's uh that's very that's darn interesting right um so that's the that because i don't i'm not going to come near my deductible um with the medicines that i'm taking sure so it sounds like if you have that high deductible that you might not in a normal year come close to reaching an online pharmacy program might be a good idea yeah i mean you know and sadly you know it's so terrible everybody's there's no like there's no one thing that works for everybody mm-hmm. um you know it depends on what medicine you take and whether your insurance which is to say their pharmacy benefit manager has decided that that is a, a medicine that they will provide to you at a decent price um and what your deductible is and what is available on the market through things like GoodRx or amazon or mark cuban's cost plus with amazon they will you kind of have the option of working with your insurance through them so that's you know, yet another, yet another, essentially, you're kind of like mapping out scenarios everywhere you go, um, which is a total pain in the butt. Like, it should, like, why should, why should I have to do all this homework? Um, I mean, I can shop for, you know, a can of tuna by just like looking at the prices on the shelf. Why do I have to open up a spreadsheet and a bunch of tabs in my browser and make a couple phone calls to find out where I can get, you know, if I'm going to get ripped off on this medication I need? We'll talk more about that homework in just a minute. Dan Weissman is our guest right now, creator and host of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about the cost of healthcare. We're looking at online discount pharmacies and how they might be able to save you money on some drugs. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you used one of these online programs like GoodRx or Amazon or Cost Plus? Have they saved you money? Or have you had bad experiences with them? And what questions do you have for Dan about how they work and why? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now, we're picking up the conversation with Dan Weissman, creator and host of An Arm and a Leg, a podcast about why healthcare costs so much. We're talking about online pharmacy discount programs, how they work, and whether you could save money using them. We're also taking your calls at 800 642 1234. And let's go to the phones right now. Nancy is with us in Milwaukee. Hi, Nancy. Hello. Hello. My com- my question has to do with a drug that has to be put into your arm in the form of a drip. I am 91 years old, and I have advanced osteoporosis. And the drug that my um, doctor's suggestion is called Reclast, and it costs it will cost me about $1,000 once a year I have to have this, uh, plus the cost of administration. But if I could get that drug at a lesser cost and just take it to my health clinic where it could be given to me, 
I would very much appreciate that. So what does your guest have to say about a drug that cannot be taken by mouth? Nancy, thanks for the call. Uh, Dan, do you know anything about that? Dean, thanks. Nancy, I, I, I to say I, this is not something I know a whole lot about. I know a little bit, um, which is if you're, if you're getting a drug administered at, you know, your doctor's office or a hospital or clinic or wherever, then it kind of, my impression is it comes through them. Um, so I wish I had a, a happier answer for you. Um, Google could teach us otherwise. This isn't something I've researched, but that, you know, from, from folks I've talked to who have, who have had to take kind of drugs this way, um, it, I, my understanding is yeah, you get it, you get it through the provider. So um, I'm sorry, I don't have better news for you there. Nancy, thank you for the call. And Dan, when it comes to those really expensive drugs that really add up, another thing you've written about is uh, these discount coupons people can get. Can you explain how those work? <laughs> how much time do we have? Well, it's a four-step process. Like, so the super expensive drugs, right, often sometimes are called specialty drugs. Drugs that can cost like, you know, thousands of dollars a month. Um, that's like the sticker price on them. And essentially the drug makers and the insurance companies or the pharmacy benefit managers are kind of playing a game. They're kind of playing a game of chicken and like we're caught in the middle of it. And the way it works is um, the drug maker sets a super, super high price. They're, th they're thinking, well, insurance is going to pay us, right? Um, the insurance company's like, we don't want to pay that price. That's ridiculous. Um, and they're not, they're not necessarily able to get the same kinds of discounts because they're not buying in great bulk. They don't necessarily have the... Um, you know, they can't kind of steer you to another equivalent generic version. So they're like, okay, well, we don't want to pay this much. I know what we'll do. <laughs> this is terrible. Why am I laughing? This is the worst thing ever. I mean, I'm mad about this. The insurance company's like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make you, the patient, pay out of pocket a whole bunch before we kick in. This is where we talk about deductibles, right? And not just deductibles, but also what are called co-pays or what you get when you uh, get with these super expensive drugs is often what they call co-insurance like hey dig me i'm co-insuring myself i'm like paying some percentage maybe 20 percent, maybe more of the price of this medication like 20 percent of thousands of dollars is a lot right so the insurance company is saying like well you know sure we are going to insure you on this drug assuming we approve it right that's a whole other question but they're like but you're going to have to pay a whole bunch up front and a lot of us are like where am i going to get that kind of money i can't pay that much and the drug company, this is step three, if you're counting, is like, oh, here, you know what we'll do? We'll give you a coupon. And this can come in a different, in various forms. But like, we'll give you a coupon for this super expensive drug. So that, that'll allow you to pay your deductible, right? Your share of this. Um, because from their perspective, like, well, great, they gave you $2,000. They're going if the, if the, if the to, let's say this is a drug that costs $10,000, they gave you $2,000. They're like, we're going to get $8,000 from insurance. We would have gotten zero. So, this, and we, you know, we gave Dan $2,000. Basically, we just like, you know, we're getting, we're getting 8,000 instead of 10,000. Sure. This is a good deal for us. And, so, and we're getting, we could get, we could get 10,000. We could get 8,000. We could get zero. We're going to take 8,000 here. So that's their move. The insurance company that has now, and the pharmacy benefit managers have now created these, their own programs. They often call them copay accumulators. And basically it's a fancy way of saying, no, uh, Dan, you're the patient. Uh, we are counting, we're figuring out how to count it. So if you use one of those coupons, it doesn't count towards your deductible. You have to pay your own money in cash 
for your share or else you're still on the hook for whatever your share is supposed to be um which is terrible and and it goes the dance keeps going on multiple steps and then like uh one new move is the drug company will send me a debit card you know they're like oh great we'll send you cash um and the and the pharmacy benefit managers are now like we are watching the numbers on these debit cards to make sure that they're not ones issued by the drug companies and if we catch you using a debit card that's issued by a drug company we will you know take your firstborn or you know screw you in some other way so that's um that's how terrible that is <laughs> so with the discount coupons the devil is in the details uh we have time for another call let's go to margaret who's with us in jackson hi margaret hey thanks for uh, taking my call a few years ago, I had gotten a copy of Consumers Reports, and they had a list of pharmacies and who was the most expensive and who was the cheapest. And uh, at the top of the list, as far as being the most, the least expensive, was HealthWarehouse.com. And I'm not comp- uh, completely computer savvy, so I just told my doctor uh, that's uh, where I wanted to get my uh, long-term prescriptions from, and he made the call to HealthWarehouse dot com and you know took care of ordering it but i have seen as much as um, 90 percent less uh costs on prescriptions than from like walgreens or cvs <clears throat> wow margaret thanks for for sharing that uh dan healthwarehouse.com is that one you're familiar with not uh not till right now uh, i'll look them up there are Thank a lot you. of these businesses though it seems like is it a growing industry a growing trend these online uh, discount programs I believe it's growing and the reason it exists is because you know it's it's a pretty simple way to make a profit you know if you're like good rx is a good example right they um you know they're kind of they're inserting themselves in the middle of this transaction they are finding for you the best price but they're just you know they've just got a little computer system set up to do that they're and they're taking a percentage like you know so millions of people use their service and they might get a dollar each time um, or $2 or $5 or whatever, but like, they're not actually doing anything, right? They're not manufacturing any drugs. They're not, they're not themselves negotiating directly with drug makers. They're not holding inventory. They're not buying any drugs. They're not operating brick and mortar pharmacies. They're not, you know, all they're doing is putting themselves in the middle of these transactions and they're with, and you know, they are, which is a valuable service and one for which they do not charge us, right? They're taking a cut out of everybody else was already taking and that is the reason that this is possible for them to make a good business out of this is because there's already so many people in the middle taking a cut and they're just like we will take a little cut from these other people's cut and and find a way to get savings for you like i'm not saying they're bad i'm i'm just saying like they exist there it's possible for them to do this because our system is so bad and Dan, we just have about 30 seconds left. If someone's listening, hearing about these programs for the first time, saying they might want to try them out, um, what would you have them keep in the front of their mind? Oh, man. Shop around. Uh, you know, see what's, see what, see where the best deal is for you. Like I said, you're going to, you may have to open a spreadsheet um, and it stinks. And you're going to have to look at like what your, I, I was just look. I was just so sorting through my email. Like, where's the chart again that says what I pay for drugs on which tier of my pharmacy plan? Like, you just got to, there's just a million things to watch like a hawk. I mean, people do it. People are, I think most, lots of people, most people are pretty vigilant, but it, there's a lot to keep track of, but it's, you can, you, you, you may well be able to find a better deal for yourself on a lot of drugs. Well, Dan, thanks for taking the time today and for helping us break this down. Dean, thanks for having me. 
Dan Weissman is the creator and host of, a, of the podcast An Arm and a Leg. We talked to him about, about online pharmacy discount programs like GoodRx and Cost Plus, how they work, and who could benefit from using them. Stay tuned. There's more to come. I'm Dean Knetter in for Rob Ferret. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network.